Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first ever episode of the Global Guessing Weekly Podcast. My name is Clay Graubard, and I am joined with my co-host, Andrew Eady. Every week, Andrew and I plan to hold conversations about all things forecasting, ranging from interviews with forecasting experts to discussions about some of our latest predictions on our website. In today's inaugural episode, we are pleased to be sitting down with author, professor, and renowned geopolitical forecaster, Dr. Balkan Devlin. Dr. Devlin first earned his BA in International Relations and Affairs from Middle Eastern Technical University in Turkey before earning his PhD in Political Science and Government from the University of Missouri, Columbia. Dr. Devlin has taught at the Izmir University of Economics in Turkey and the University of Copenhagen in Denmark. Dr. Devlin is currently a senior fellow at the McDonald Lawyer Institute, a Canadian public policy think tank and is also the director of the Center in Modern Turkish Studies at Carleton University in Ontario, Canada. Devlin is also a super forecaster for Good Judgment, Inc., and the author of a geopolitical forecasting substack called Hindsight 2020. You should all subscribe to after listening to this episode. We could say a lot more about him, but we have to get to our questions. So without further ado, welcome, Dr. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So, so we'd like to, no, yeah, we'd just like to start off with your background and how you first got started in forecasting. And so could you talk to us about how you first got introduced to the world of quantitative, uh, quantified forecasting and what really drew you into the practice? Sure. Um, one of the reasons why I went on to study international relations uh, back in mid 1990s uh, was to have a better sense of how you know, rapid changes in the world uh, are going to affect us all. So it was about thinking about the future. Um, you know, this is a time, you know, massive changes were happening in Europe and elsewhere. You know, I was growing up and and, and you know, going through college when the Yugoslav wars of succession were going on in Bosnia and elsewhere, um, and, and, and genocide in, in Rwanda and, and, and all other places. So the, uh, the idea of trying to understand these rapid changes and uncertainties in the future was the one one thing that that drive me to international relations. Um, so, and of course, with a lot of people who are in, in a similar position, I was very much interested in science fiction and, and thinking um, uh, about the future more broadly. Um, but one thing that you know throughout the, throughout the university and, and later on throughout graduate school is uh, the sort of the lack of um, rigor in thinking about the future um, and the maybe perhaps we can talk this uh, later on and the 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 you know, misaligned incentive structures um that one can see about accurate accurately predicting or thinking about the future uh versus just you know just just what what tetlock called you know vague verbiage right um so i was i was always thinking about how we can think in a more rigorous way about the future and and, and try to sort of help that, help, you know, thinking about the future in this way to um, structure our actions um, today. Um, when, when, when the first ace, ace tournament, IARPA's um, ace tournament you know, for the, for the uh, geopolitical forecasting was announced, um, I saw it in an in a, in a email group back in 2010 or 11 um, uh, at the time uh, by a, through an e email by Philip Tetlin, which um, part of my academic interest was political psychology, especially 
Uh, the role of individual policymakers, and I was always interested in bringing, you know, uh, game theory together with uh, with political psychology to understand how people behave and what what may, they could do. So I was very much aware of Philip Tetlock's work on cognitive complexity and and and, and other things. Uh, so when I saw an email, I wanted to apply initially, but for the first season, uh, they only accepted um, American citizens. Um, part of the requirement by the uh, by by IR pilot. They open up later on in the second season, so I, I got in uh, to be part of it later on, um, and then became uh, became a forecaster in the third season, I believe, um, and, and maintained that with the, in the last season of, of Good Judgment. The primary reason why I wanted to do that was the the ace tournament in which Good Judgment came on top, um, provides me with an opportunity to test my models of the world in real time. Right, it provides feedback, and 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 quiet, you know, harsh feedback um, uh, in terms of how I think the world works. Right, and um, for me, that that was the biggest attraction. Here is a, 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 a you know a tournament, a system in which I can throw away how I think about the world and how things would evolve, and I can get feedback almost immediately. And in academic work, as as you guys know. It's you know you know you write about things and uh, about maybe you know for 10, 20, 15 years later on and and it's not really an immediate feedback loop. So the the way that you can correct is a lot slow and and that's not necessarily incentive structure at any rate. Um, so that was my primary motivation. It, it it enables me to test whether the way I think about the world is actually accurate um, and would it help me to make decisions later on. Uh, and when I'm wrong, I can go back and look. Right? Why was I wrong? Uh, was I wrong in terms of outcome for the right reasons, or do I happen to get lucky and got the uh, the prediction right, but for the wrong reasons? Right. So that level of keeping yourself honest and testing your models uh, in real time over a very broad uh, set of questions. I think we answered like I don't know four hundred questions or five hundred questions overall uh, in the ACE tournament. Um, give you a good good sense of. Uh, where your weaknesses are, where your blind spots are. Um, so that was my that was my primary motivation in getting involved with good judgment, and my you know, involvement continued afterwards uh, when, when the commercial spin-off came out of that tournament. You mentioned your thesis just now. Um, Clay and I actually had a chance to give a brief look at your thesis. We were able to find it online, which is interesting. Um, and you talk about game theory within the context of renegade regimes, which is very interesting for us as two people who have studied um, a good amount of theory. We were wondering. In what way does game theory sort of impact the work that you do today? How does it interact with, with forecasting? Um, you know, you sort of talked about this live feedback. Is, is forecasting a way to sort of um, operationalize that game theory that you utilize in your thesis? Or what's the relationship? Oh, that, uh, very good question. Um, in terms of the practical day-to-day, -day, when I you know, answer questions for the judgment and similar platforms, I very rarely do any sort of explicit modeling. Uh, with regards to the game theory today. Um, but how it informs me, I think, is more about the way I'd like to think about um, about, about actions and decisions. Uh, in that sense, game theory is a very powerful tool um, because it forces you to focus on, uh, on two things. It forces you to think about the, the incentive structure um, in a given domain and from the structure, from the environment, drive certain predictions that you can see 
uh, whether it can work or not. So it, in a way, it's more of an you know, intuitive or implicit uh, use of game theory in, in most of my work. When I do, uh, I, I tend to think, okay, so what could be the, um, you know, uh, if, if I am in, in that person's shoes, um, and if I think about my preference ordering over a, a set of outcomes um, uh, in this particular domain, how would I order that? And if I order that, how you know what would affect my ordering? It would be the incentive structures and what, where I will you know maximize uh, my utility. Um, and that utility doesn't have to be material; it could be uh, in an ideological and other things. And if I think that is the model, and that gives me the opportunity to say whether that is a correct and accurate representation of that entity, that actor's uh, preference ordering. Uh, and if if that is correct, how would they act? Right. Um, and most of it is not done necessarily, like I said, in a in a paper and, and pen format. I don't draw the, uh, the 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 game trees and 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 whatnot. But it gives me a, a sense of trying to think from the outcomes that I want to achieve and moving backwards, what I would do if that was my end goal, and then structure it that way in a in a, in a sub game perfect uh, uh, equilibrium sort of um, structure. Not necessarily in a formal way, but you know. So working through game theory in in my dissertation and later on provide me with that sort of mindset in approaching things uh, primarily. And then sort of building on top of that, um, is that the sort of same way that you approach incorporating IR theory into forecast relating to geopolitics? Um, you know, we were talking about earlier, you were mentioning how IR lacks these sort of rigorous checks. Um, and I'm just wondering uh, if part of that has to do with like theory formalization, right? You know, Waltz talks about how we're not worried about outcomes. We're just talking about, you know, general changes in behavior based on um, like third level conditions and et cetera. So if there are limitations to how IR can be brought into theory, um, and if you do bring in theory, could you maybe give us an example of a prediction and how theory was used to help you formulate uh, the outcome? Um, the way I use IR theory, I'm a, you know, I'm a you know, self-declared realist or a, at least a classical realist, increasingly more on the classical side rather than on the neo side. Um, the more I, I, I think and work through, um, through stuff. Um, but the way I tend to bring it in is, is this more sort of broad background understanding of, of, of the general dynamics uh, in the world. In, in other words, um, you know, when I rely on IRT, right, be the, be the realist thinking or, 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 or others, I tend to think that as, as providing the constraining uh, elements of, of a particular domain in, in geopolitics. Um, rather than using IR theory to derive specific predictions about about that issue, um, now we can do that with more you know middle range uh, theorizing. There's a lot of the neoclassical realist work tries to do that, um, or or you know some of the more more you know, specific rationalist theories you know from bargaining and so on and so forth, uh, which then you can use. But to me, the way I use it as more of a worldview component. You know what I think matters. In international affairs, that is the theoretical component in um, in my in my worldview, in, in the way I understand and look at things. You know, I would, I, you know, that and that's generally shaped by realism in the sense that you know, uh, power plays a central role. Uh, when push comes to the shove, um, uh, it will eventually uh, depend on conflict groups and and one group's ability to harm others um, in a very physical sense. Um, so 
uh, in that sort of understanding of the world you know the 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 civilization is a quite thin veneer and and maintaining sort of a tragic you know and it doesn't necessarily have to be um intentional sort of evil sort of um structure that people go to war or conflict but the incentives the the, the presence of of security dilemma the the reality of of, of group identities that we, how we identify ourselves and our interests therefore provides an opportunity to to understand what are the fundamental dynamics or immutable dynamics of international politics and from there i make certain predictions and, and forecasts um based uh, based on that so ir theory in that sense plays the background um constraining um framework uh for me to look what matters when you're making a decision and what would matter eventually um for the outcomes and for my students i'm going to wrap up here in this way for my students i generally give the example uh, of Liechtenstein. i don't want to pick on Liechtenstein in any shape or form but you know um the leaders of Liechtenstein. The Duke or the Prince, whoever, um, would uh, have uh, world domination fantasies. They will never do that because they don't have the capabilities uh, to achieve such uh, an outcome. Well, if you're talking about Germany or Russia or China or United States, well, that's a different story, right? They have the capabilities to achieve that. Um, and that way of looking at it, whether you actually have the capabilities to do things that you want to do, provides you um uh, the, the the what is plausible what is uh what is what is possible and therefore how you should um constrain your your probable outcomes uh, out there so then does that change based on the actor that you're like looking at so if the primary actor is the european union are you shifting in the foundational theories you're using then if say you're looking at a conflict between like say you know, strategic partnership between Russia and China. Um, does that underlying theory where the range of outcomes, does that change? Because um, I had a professor who always made sure to say there's no such thing as realists. There's just practitioners of realism. Um, theory doesn't exist in a vacuum. It is people implementing theory that actually matters. And so therefore, does that have an effect based on the actor you're looking at, which theories you're considering? Exactly. No, I, okay. I I totally agree with that. Um, and again, it's you know, it's I, I tend to see realism as more of a disposition uh, rather than a, a coherent set of uh, you know either Kuhnian or Lakatoshian understanding of uh, connected propositions and hypotheses and axioms and so on. So forth. Um, I tend to see it as more of a disposition. The and and I think Richard Ledlabov uh, puts it quite nicely. It's a, it's a tragic uh, disposition in the sense that. You know, despite your best efforts, uh, bad things happen, and it doesn't necessarily need to have any reason or rhyme. Uh, and that you know, it's 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 a more of a circular understanding, and so on and so forth. So I said this position about um, things can get get bad uh, because there are there are power struggles, and there will always be one among groups, and so on and so forth. Um, when you come to the specific issues, then you would start switching between you know what works as a tool um, in understanding. Uh, how you can solve that problem, right? So for me, it's a it's 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 a lot more useful to say look at various governance uh, debates, say I don't know from intergovernmentalism to supranationalism and so on and so forth, or uh, to understand the, the the specific dynamics within EU, uh, than just to you know impose some other external 
uh, theory that would not necessarily make sense there. Um, so those are tools. Those are tools that you reach out to make sense of what is going on. Um, but it, it always comes with a particular disposition, I think. And, and people who say tend to have a more liberal disposition uh, in the IR theory sense would uh, see more opportunities for cooperation while people like me tends to uh, be always looking in the shadows and see what kind of uh, threats lurking there. And that I think that's that's a lot to do with personality, with upbringing, with, with you know, the intellectual journey that you come through and so on and so forth. But those are more background conditions. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and the way I approach um, the theory is not really different than, than different methods that I, I, I reach out uh, to understand the problem, be it a quantitative you know, work, could be game theory, could be in-depth ethnographic work, depending on what works in that, in that specific circumstance. Great. So, like as we mentioned before, um, Fetlock super forecasting was our introduction into sort of the forecasting space. Um, and most of our exposure to forecasting in general has been somewhat US centric. Um, something that we found really interesting about your background is that you know you've operated in Canada and Denmark, Turkey, the United States. Has that geographic context um, at all altered the work that you do? Do you see some areas have different approaches to forecasting or a different level of acceptance to sort of these novel forecasting methods in other uh, geographic contexts? Yes. Um, well, maybe two things there. The U.S. is definitely sort of the, on the leading edge uh, of this. Uh, and there's a reason why a lot of these things are being funded uh, by uh, you know, various U.S. Um, government uh, agencies. Um, I mean, let me put it this way. In, 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 in a majority of the places, um, thinking about the future is generally in a bunch of guys uh, coming around a table and, and talking, uh, if it happens at all. Um, and so it's not necessarily an institutionalized way of doing it. It's generally winging it, um, it because the payoffs are not there for, for the majority of the people who need to think about this. U.S. in that sense is, is, is a different, um, um, different ballgame. Uh, and I, that has a lot to do, I believe, with the specific people who are involved in, in, in the IARPA and the DARPA um, uh, you know, organizations um, that actually push for this. Um, because still, even in the US, um, when you look at the government level or the bureaucratic level, um, uh, you know, accurate forecasts are not you know, up there uh, in terms of, of priority. Um, things are changing though. Um, for example, in, in, in Europe, um, there's, there's a recent uh, commission-wide report uh, that basically put foresight um, into sort of a central uh, central component of um, European Union uh, decisions going forward. There's a, a vice commissioner uh, for foresight in Europe, uh, part of the European Commission. Now, the, the, the way they understand foresight is a bit different. I find it a bit you know, wishy-washy um, uh, in the sense that it's about, oh, plausible, da, 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 da. Uh, but it is still a step. It's a, a step to try to think in a more disciplined way about about different alternatives out there and how uh, how we can anticipate and change and and you know the idea is not you you forecast i mean for me i just do it because i want to see whether my model works but for practitioners you want to anticipate so you can take the actions to alter uh, the trajectory in your in your advantage um so that is coming back that is coming back in uh, big time in europe as well uh, but, you know, uh, in Turkey, it almost uh, non-existent. I was one of the handful of non-Americans um, 
that end up qualifying as a super forecaster uh, through the uh, IARPAS um, uh, competition. Uh, it was like, I think 85% of participants were Americans um, as well. But now, for example, we have a broader diverse group within good judgment, um, you know, people from everywhere um, uh, increasingly. Uh, so I think that's, um, that brings a lot of useful perspectives and it served me well um, in several questions. Um, to have a different perspective. Do you think part of changing that, how much attention is given to foresight is in part due to how academia is structured, particularly looking at how, what is considered for acceptable theses? Um, you're always told, you know, do things in the past, look backwards, has to be five, 10, 20 years in the past. Um, and, you know, I've personally always like for undergrad, I wanted to focus on automation and artificial intelligence mm -hmm. and how that would impact the international space, but that's forward looking. And so therefore is not the right place to do that kind of research. Um, and given that most people don't get PhDs and then have time to make papers on their side, do you think that, you know, part of it is also just what's considered the bounds of, of acceptable academic research for, you know, everyone that doesn't have a tenure position and can, you know, make whatever journal articles they can, assuming they have an endowed fellowship and all of those additional things as well. Um, I don't know if you've given thought to that as being a yeah. potential. I think, I think that's definitely one of the one of the things. I mean, when you look at it, academia is one of the most conservative institutions uh, in the world in terms of structure, small c conservative. Um, you know, we, we, we're essentially moving forward with a, a modified version of the medieval uh, guild um, that is filtered through sort of the, the German understanding of, uh, uh, of of what a university is in the 19th century. Um, still the same sort of way of ways of thinking and organization, um, right? So it is still uh, a very, very, you know, slow to change um, structure and incentives. I keep coming back to it. I mean, if, if one thing that I get out of my, um, you know, uh, education and background in, in, in economics and several things that I did um, is, you know, incentives is what matters fundamentally, right? I mean, most of these co contemporary economics is about incentives and incentive design and mechanism design and all that kind of thing. Um, and, and academia and incentives are not uh, necessarily about being, especially in social sciences, um, about predicting it in the future being being accurate. It's, it's, that's not because that's not who you are you're talking to. You're talking to other academics uh, who are doing similar work. So it's more about the minute detail of, of a particular case or not. Um, so it's a more, the, the emphasis is more on, on looking back, you know, explanation, on understanding, and, a, and, a, and an aversion, uh, to be honest, uh, within the social sciences, broadly speaking, about um, making a claim, making a, a, a claim that you can be uh, falsified. Um, uh, later on, uh, because if you speak, you know, in very broad terms, you know, balances will be formed when, how, where, who knows? They will eventually, you know. Um, you cannot be falsified, and you're not, you're not, you're not being rewarded for being accurate, right? I mean, uh, John Mersheimer's 1990s articles are a great example. You could be, you know, uh, again and again. Or Huntington. Exactly, or Huntington, you know, you could be wrong again and again. It never just sort of um, impact uh, your your credibility in the field. Um, so, so people don't go there. There's no incentive. There's no, no upside um, for uh, risking, you know, uh, 
accurate predictions yeah. because yeah, it is you don't gain much if when you're right. Uh, so well, what's the point? Um, but looking backwards is is how it is generally um, uh, you know structured and. It's very, very hard to to break it. I'm certain fields are different. AI, in that sense, you're in, in an actually perfect, um, uh, maybe Swiss spot, and that would enable you to think through because it, it is one of those areas in which uh, people think very carefully about the future, and you know, um, and 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 is you know, UK has uh, at least two great centers on um, on existential risk, and AI plays a huge role in it. Uh, both the the future of humanity Institute in Oxford, um, as well as this uh, Caesar in Cambridge, the, the Center for Study of Existential Risk. Um, and, and, you know, in that field, anticipating the future is the primary purpose. So there is a lot more rigorous and careful work being done there. And interestingly enough, a lot of it is coming from both philosophy and, and more engineering and mathematical backgrounds. Very little, uh, unfortunately, social sciences. Um, so, um, but things are changing slowly in the past maybe five years. It, it really picked up. Um, uh, so, but, there is it's very, very slow change, but it's still a very minuscule aspect of what academia does and what it rewards. And then people in it, because they're not rewarded for, for accurate predictions or anticipation, they're not doing it. And it's very hard to change it. You talked a lot about sort of approaches to predictions. We were wondering if just value for, for our readers and watchers, is there um, sort of a prediction that you can talk to that you've done in the past without giving away you know, information about the client who it was for, but yeah, just a prediction that you've done in the past and sort of how you actually approached it um, for your work. Sure. Um, I'll give you two examples. One where I completely bombed it um, <laughs> and totally missed it because I think those are more more sort of uh, interesting. It's, you, know, you can always talk about, oh, I did this right. And if you think for the things that you, you missed it, you, you will not really learn anything. Um, one on that and one uh, I was... Um, Different from the crowd, and I end up being right. Um, the crowd being being wrong on why I think that. Start with the second, and this was uh, the question on uh, Turkish presidential election back in 2018, I think, um, and whether it would result in the first round or not. Um, was kind of the question, and there was a lot of uh, you know comments within the forum that was going on when I was, I was uh, forecasting the question. I was around 90 percent uh, saying that it will. Uh, result in the first round and Recep Tayyip Erdogan will be the president. And a lot of pushback comes from, well, this is what the polls suggest, and oh, this is how it goes. And, yeah. So a lot of very rational arguments. My approach was was different, partly because I thought my my the way I approach it was not so much what are the objective conditions under which to go um, one way or another, what would the polls say, etc., but what are the incentives um, for uh, for Erdogan um, to uh, to make sure that things didn't go in the second round? Um, given sort of the whole history, he doesn't. He, my argument is practically that he could he cannot afford to lose, and he cannot even afford this to go to the second round, given the whole sort of corruption and the political oppression debates and everything else. That goes on on, on time in Turkey. So it's not your your, your grandmother's uh, election in and I mean essence. Um, this is a guy who cannot afford to lose, um, and therefore he would do everything in his power 
uh, legal or illegal, to maintain that. So the results will be, whether they are they are accurate representation of people's will or not, the results will be as such that he will win in the first which turns out to be the case. Um, but my approach was more of rather than, and this is an interesting sideway, rather than your outside view, which is typically what you know, um, um, argues for your base rate, uh, is how these things have been generated. This is a very um, an inside view. And I think the, the the useful lesson there is those are guidelines when you read this it's about keeping that balance and knowing when you need to shift uh, towards the inside, when it is different now. Right? If everything follows the mean, if everything reverses to the mean all the time, there are no surprises. Uh, but the point is to identify conditions under which you need to, you know, you need to, you need to focus on the inside more, more than the outside. Right? Um, so uh, in that particular instance, uh, it was beneficial for me to, to focus on that. Um, rather than um, when you look at these sort of the, the question that I, I really sort of uh, completely um, uh, completely end up missing um, one one that that primarily comes to mind is um, to do with the um, the North Korean yeah the the, the Trump um, uh, Kim <laughs> uh, uh, meeting will it happen or not? Um, which happened in Singapore. Um, and, and there, for example, I was swayed by the, by the crap. And my initial thought was, you know, while Trump was a showman, he'd like to do that, he probably would. So my initial forecast was, but then I, I, I engaged with people, read their arguments, and they go, no, it's not going to happen. It's and it and the Department does that. And, and given the conditions over there, they're all, you know, Flaky and would not go, and so I, I steadily decreased um, uh, my, uh, my my forecast because I was convinced they're right. You know, Trump wouldn't be able to pull this off. Um, and up until the last minute, it, it almost shows that uh, that's not going to happen. And I was like, yes, yeah, it flipped over, and we we all got a horrible briar score out of it because we we were putting like I don't know, percent, ten percent that was happening, and then uh, he flipped. He flipped the table again. That that is a good um, you know example of how um, you it's looking at again balancing uh, inside versus outside view and your own sort of um, way of thinking with the crowd with the crowd engagement. I should have stick with with my own um, because my primary framework approaching high level political decisions tend to be very individual centric because of my background in political psychology and interest in the decision makers react. Um, uh, as, you know, so I should have stick with, you know, okay, this is from this is how what we know about his personality, his modus of operandi. The, the the chances that he would try to pull something off should be more than your average American president. And I sort of suppressed that inclination and went with the crowd because I was convinced their arguments completely bombed out. <laughs> um, but that, that, that again gave me a sense of you know, um, where I need to correct and what I need to change. 
And have you learned of ways to sort of catch yourself like, oh, like maybe in this case I should, because right, there are cases where like you, you do come up with your own idea and then you read someone else is like, oh, wait, actually, no, the crowd is definitely right. Right. I, I would imagine on average over a long period of time in general, going with the crowd is better. So then, yeah. Have you like developed tricks to sort of for yourself mentally to sort of like go through like a checklist of almost like, is it good to change with the crowd? Do you have criteria yes. for that? Like a heuristic almost. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, what I tend to do generally, if I'm you know, uh, uh, facing with a crowd opinion uh, that substantially differs uh, than what I think should happen, um, I generally flip the question. Will I be convinced if I am uh, of the opinion of the crowd and the crowd is of, of, of the opinion of me, right? So I, I, I flip it. Um, um, I flip it and, and try to see uh, which seems to be uh, more convincing. Will I be convinced by the crowd if the crowd is saying what I, I think it is and my opinion is what the crowd think it is uh, previously? So that gives you, a, a, you know, okay, maybe my arguments are not as strong as I think it is because once... I take it as, as someone else's opinion. I tend to start thinking about, okay, what could be the weaknesses? You know, how can we put you know, you know holes into this and sort of engage in a rhythming in that way, right? I try to now try to defend the crowd's opinion as my own, my opinion, and try to defeat the crowd's opinion as, as, as by my former opinion. Um, that generally is a, is a good check, at least in my case, because it helps you. Uh, to um, bring along the cognitive biases rather than fight against them, right? Um, it, it helps you to bring along the cognitive biases because you are predisposed to prefer your explanation to others' explanation. It's easier to criticize others than criticize yourself. So if you have to project your thinking to on others and then criticize there, it's easier to do that. And you, you will be more harsh, um, and that actually is better for you. <laughs> so instead of fighting that urge, uh, uh, you actually bring it along. Um, I find that quite useful. Uh, you know, flipping flipping the tables and and then going at my uh, own prediction as if it is the crowd's prediction. That's fascinating. Um, we just have one more question, and then we're going to get into just a couple rapid fire ones. Um, but the last question is, as we mentioned in the introduction. Um, you have this Substack newsletter, Hindsight 2020. We were wondering about um, what the impetus was for starting that newsletter, how it's been going, um, and where you'd like your own project to go moving forward. Excellent. Um, well, the impetus is actually not so much different than, than yours for, for starting this. It was more of a public ledger uh, for me to sum up my predictions down in a more sort of longhand format um, and, and organize or push myself to organize uh, my, my my thinking that sort of connects thinking about uncertainty about geopolitics about, about the future um, uh, publicly out there so that I could be held accountable for myself so that was that was the primary uh, thing making it out there uh, obliges me to write about it right there and seeing it there would force me to think more clearly about how uh, well, my how my predictions go, um, and yeah. um, so rather than keeping them in a private format um, with the judgment on others, um, I want to put some of them out there in, in, in that way to think more, more clearly. So that was my was my initial. Um, and when I when I have the time, I want to move on with that 
to, uh, first I want to write more, but it's, it's all about, you know, uh, uh, trade of time and things to do. I want to write more. Uh, but I want to sort of expand that to, to a more regular, uh, you know, reports in the sense that it's, this is what I, I thought was going to happen uh, last year. Uh, this is what happened, what I, what I learned, how I learned. Um, and then I move forward with a series of more larger, perhaps, uh, pieces uh, where I, I, I try to sort of bring more rigor uh, into uh, thinking a couple of years uh, ahead. Um, and, and 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 combine um, sort of the more, more quantitative probabilistic forecasting with with what sometimes is called strategic force, um, because I think there is a way. You know, looked at lot recently with this public also went in just similar way. You had to combine those things. One of the criticisms of the judgment and forecasting overall tends to be: well, you are not asking the questions that matter to the policy. The big questions, the hard questions, uh, don't necessarily lend themselves into um, precise wording uh, and, and, and probabilistic estimates. But the idea for me is to work more towards how can we ask the more interesting and hard questions and use the tools we have from the probabilistic forecasting, from various premortems and rating answer those questions in a more um, precise manner um, so that we are both accurate and relevant um, for policymakers. So that's the direction I want to take with that. That's awesome. And um, we, I mean, I'm personally subscribed to your Substack, um, and there will be a, a link down uh, below. Um, the, the most recent post I really liked um, that's the one that got me to uh, subscribe. Uh, so now at the end of all of these interviews, we like to do a few rapid fire questions. Um, two of them are ones that we asked to Regina, uh, but the other one is because I've heard the same word over and over and over again in the interview called incentives in predictions. And I was wondering if you had taken a look at websites, uh, including Metaculus, and if you thought their approach to having community points was a way to have proper incentives to push better forecasting, or do you think um, a better future is in um, platforms such as Kalshi, which allows money trading um, on event-based um, predictions? Well, let me uh, let me start with that. I think of I'm agnostic. To be honest, um, one of the reasons I'm skeptical about the, uh, sort of the prediction markets and structure of the money uh, component um, is, 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 is the liquidity, is the, is the availability or the depth of, of, of the market. It's, it's very, even, even the most sort of the top ones like the predicted uh, into the political uh, prediction uh, market. Very shallow. You can move a lot of things and, and there. So, so the idea then that becomes um, uh, accurately predicting the particular outcome but you know, arbitration between uh, different different views on the market to make money. So it kind of sort of divergent. Incentives don't necessarily align. Um, so I am I'm skeptical of uh, using uh, you know making money through accurate predictions through a market style um, uh, formula. I think prediction markets have 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 a role, but I'm skeptical in terms of whether that's a, that's a useful incentive. Um, when I look at people who 
get into this uh, way of thinking. In meticulous, in the judgment open, in other places that try to predict. I tend to see two um, incentives that drive people generally. One is, is an intrusion. People like me, who does it not necessarily for the money, but to see whether what I think in the world works is actually working that way, right? So you, you drive some satisfaction from that. Um, the others tend to, to be driven more uh, by the competitive instinct. Um, it's, it's more about external validation in the sense that it, it's a sport. It's, you know, you beat, uh, you beat the competition. You're number one. Um, you're, you're, you're in the top three. Um, and so your, your drive is to compete with others. Now, um, do you really need uh, money for that? It helps, but that won't be much to come through. So putting the same level of effort on some other uh, in an endeavor would give you, would bring you more cash flow, um, uh, most likely rather than a few hundred dollars or whatever you're gonna win um, trying to trying to do this. Um, so no, it is it is more the, the the social hierarchy component. You know, I, I do this, I compete, I win. It's my 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 competitive um, instinct that helps me to do it. Um, and there, I think the community points might be a good incentive um, with the, the way Metaculus does, and because. It you know it, it gamifies it in a way it, it provides that that uh, in a very public way of I am the top dog um, here you see kind of thing. and we are as a species quite a competitive species you know um, we like to do it in teams we, you know there's a reason why almost every culture have team sports of one uh, way or another um, we like to create those sort of hierarchies and in that sense it could help um, I believe but overall. Um, how much it would attract others who are not driven either one of these two um, uh, drives, uh, I don't know. And whether that's a loss in terms of being more accurate in the future. In other words, would it matter when people are either intrinsically or extrinsically geared towards making accurate forecasts uh, are not involved? Um, would this would this be a loss? I don't know. That's a, that's a uh, that's a testable proposition. Um, uh, so I'm agnostic in the long-term uh, uh, aspects of this, uh, but I'm more partial to the gamification component rather than uh, the prediction markets making money. And just really right. quickly, um, I was wondering, do you think that, for instance, somebody who's at the top of the charts on Metaculus, do you feel like that achievement um, would translate then to doing similar work to what you do in terms of forecasting as a job? Like, could they use that as sort of almost like certification of their forecasting abilities, or do you think that the two skill sets are still there's a chasm there? The the primary chasm there is, I think, um, you know, convincing people that this actually matters for their livelihood, for the future of their business, yeah. uh, for their well-being. Uh, what I see uh, generally at the policy level, what um, uh, in business and in government side is. Uh, People don't necessarily sort of um, wrap their mind around why making accurate predictions earlier um, is going to be good for their business, right? And it's, it's, it depends a lot on, of course, who you talk to. Again, I want to come back to the incentive structure. Um, you know, if if your you know, income, if your salary is not necessarily depending on being five percent more accurate than the other guy. 
I mean, you'll get if if you're gonna get your you know, regardless, um, you will not necessarily be interested in um, spending money on that. But for say, for example, you are talking with a, a, an entrepreneur or a founder who's you know whose incentive is who would be earning a lot more if he or she is slightly more accurate than the others. There's a lot of incentive to put money into that because that gives you the edge, right? But, you know, if you're talking about, I don't know, a HR person who, whose job is uh, <laughs> not to screw up rather than um, increase the, you know, the company bottom line by 5%, well, you know, uh, why would you want to risk of being singled out for being wrong if you are being precise, right? A lot of people, um, prefer to be vaguely right than precisely wrong. Um, and that's the incentive um, um, uh, structure in, in, in a broad academy and, and, and a government and, and in the business sector. So it is always an um, uphill battle to identify why this is a good thing, um, why you actually benefit your organization, your company, uh, your department benefits from being more accurate about about the future um, is is always a bit of a um, uh, uphill battle, uh, I would say. All right, and to close it off, you will now be asked to make two rapid fire predictions, both of which were asked to Regina as well. Number one, and this one, given your name, I think you would have a little bit of extra expertise. What is the likelihood that Putin annexes more territory in Eastern Europe, including the Balkans, uh, in the next five years? Uh, less than 5%. Less than 5%. And then what is the likelihood that we credibly detect alien life defined as cellular life proto-organisms in the next 10 years? Hmm. Extraterrestrial. You can't. Um, an alien gets at that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sure. That, that would include things in Mars and in in various, you know, uh, in the moons of the Jupiter and every, everything else in between the meteors and asteroids and everything. Yes, but it has to be current. It can't be past. Oh, okay. So existing, continuing life rather than something that um, that have existed a million years ago. Let's do both. Okay. So I think uh, finding life that existed, so if it is the broader prediction mm -hmm. that includes both of the classes uh, in the next 10 years, um, I say 10 to 15% at least. Okay. Um, I, if, I, if I need to give you a range, I'll give a range of 10 to 25%. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you my, very briefly my uh, reasoning behind it. More and more uh, countries and private corporations are sending probes and, and, and space missions. We are actually increasing the number of potential you know, uh, discovery sites. Um, and and Elon Musk to go to uh, uh, Mars, etc. I think would also kick off, including Bezos and others who are trying to do the space. So there will be an explosion of of space exploration in the next ten years that increases our potential to do so. Um, and I think there are already signs with regards to the Mars, particularly as well as some of the moons of Jupiter, um, uh, that that suggest that there was life at some point because of water. So I think we will uh, tend to. to, to percent chance that we will find something that exists now continuing existing live um cellular sort of um, structure i will put that somewhere within the range of two to four percent 
um, uh, left infectious. Um, uh, partly because it's harder to, you, you got to be at the exact right space. You know, it might exist in one small part going on and, and Mars is huge. So you might not necessarily land in the, in the correct you know, uh, spot and stuff like that. Um, and it is a lot naturally because it's a conjunction, right? It's a lot less likely than the other one um, uh, to, to happen. So it's, it, it's, I would say it's less than 5% or closer to the 3%. All right. Well, we'll make sure to get back to you in five to 10 years, let you know how uh, those predictions did. Um, just for all of our watchers out here, um, you can find Balkan over at BalkanDevlin.com, at BalkanDevlin on Twitter, and his Substack link is h2020.substack.com. Uh, anything else, uh, Balkan, that you would like to plug for where people can find you? No, thank you very much. Uh, much appreciated. Um, and I Thanks so much for all your time and your answers. It was a it was a wonderful conversation. We we definitely learned a lot. Yeah, I'm very I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. Thank all you right, and make sure to tune in next week for uh, the second episode of the Global Medicine Weekly Podcast. Um, we don't think next week will be an interview. It'll be a discussion, most likely about our next episode of Metaculous Mondays. Um, but then we are having a series of interviews we're trying to line up for the future. So much more to come over here. All right. Thank you, everyone. All right. Thank and that'll be everyone. the ending of the recording. Awesome. Really All right. It. Thank you so much for, yeah, having all this time. Thanks. to sit down and talk to us. It was, it was a lot of fun.